For those visitors here, I'm Nathan, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's, uh, it's great to have you here today. I think we might change our, our church name, maybe the Church of the Open Door, uh, maybe Canterbury Gardens Sauna. We've got many options today, but it's great to have you here on this very warm day, and uh, I look forward to sharing from God's Word. We're going to be looking at Psalm 90 today. And did you know there's a, uh, there's a famous cathedral in Europe? It's actually uh, the Milan Cathedral, and if you can just picture with me, I'll try and draw a picture for you. you know, like They have a sanctuary inside this cathedral, and on the way into the sanctuary, there's three arches. So you can enter into the, into the sanctuary by one of these three arches. On the right entrance, uh, these words are carved in the marble archway. All that pleases is but for a moment. All that pleases is but for a moment. Over the left entrance, leading worshippers into the sanctuary, I chiseled these words. All that troubles is but for a moment. All that troubles is but for a moment. And visibly etched over the main archway leading down to the, the center aisle is this inscription. All that is important is eternal. There's a wonderful picture of what we're going to discuss today. The message on those archways is very clear for all who enter into that sanctuary. All that is temporal is ultimately trivial. What is truly important in the present is what will be important 10,000 years from now. And that engraved message chiseled over the center aisle is a central theme of this psalm. We're going to be looking at Psalm 90 today. You see, in life, uh, we often become concerned with what is passing away, that which troubles or pleases only momentarily. Unfortunately, we are then most prone to lose sight of what is eternal. We get swamped by the here and now. But this psalm is beautifully transcendent. It towers over time and eternity, written to remind us that what matters most in life is not the temporal, but the eternal. Not the physical, but the spiritual. Not the visible, but the invisible. In other words, what truly matters is the eternal. By way of introduction now, Psalm 90 is the only psalm in the Psalter that is penned by Moses. You know, we've got 150 psalms in, in our Psalter, and they're a collection that are compiled over a 900-year period. The editors who pulled this together were primarily there to pull it together for worship. By the time of the, the second temple in, in AD 500, or BC 500, the Jews were wanting to, to worship God, so they, they pulled this uh, bunch of psalms together. They're actually in five books, did you, did you know that? 
150 psalms are broken up into five books. The first book is Psalm 1 to 41. The second book is Psalm 42 to 72. The third book is Psalm 73 to 89. The fourth book is Psalm 90. The one we're looking to is the start of the fourth book of the Psalms through 106. And the fifth book is 107 through 150. Now it's thought of that most likely these books were, were compiled during the reigns of different kings. The first book through the reign of David, the second of Solomon, the third of Jehoshaphat, the fourth of Hezekiah, and the final book during the exile. And this psalm is, is intriguing because chronologically this is the first psalm written. This is written some 1,400 years before Christ stepped on this earth. When was the last psalm? Does anyone know the last psalm? Psalm 137. How do we know that? You know this because of Boney M. Who knows Boney M? Sorry, young folks, you won't know who Boney M. When I was your age, Boney M was a big thing. Come on, some of you folks my age. You know who Boney M is, right? What do they sing? By the rivers of Babylon. Psalm 137. When were the people sitting by the rivers of Babylon? During the exile. So that's the last psalm that was written. So we have this compilation of wonderful songs, uh, things that tell us about God. They're a very vital part of the Israelite community and, and individuals within that community. <coughs> the entire collection was available by 516 BC. And it reminded the people of their commitment to the Torah, to the law, and, and how they should respond to God's law. And it also reminded and, and, and focused the people on the future messianic promise that the Messiah would come. But do you know what? The Psalms are unique. I'm sure many of us here have taken comfort from the Psalms in times of distress, in times of trouble. As we've read, men's hearts been poured out in praise to God. Not only praise, because the Psalms can be penitential, where the psalmist pours out his confession for his sin and asks for mercy from an all-knowing and all-loving God. The Psalms are also used to, to start the worship of, as they would move up to the temple at Passover time, songs of ascent. There are Messianic Psalms. There are imprecatory Psalms. I like imprecatory Psalms. You know what an imprecatory Psalm is? I'll give you a modern translation. This is the foxhole Psalm. You know what a foxhole is? Think about war. Who's watched Band of Brothers? Oh, a fellow brother. World War II, okay? The, the, the Allied forces sweeping through Europe for final conquering. And there's one particular battle, the Battle of Bastogne. And these soldiers are stuck in foxholes with, with bombs and shells just completely um, bombarding them. And some psalms are like that, where the psalmist just cries out and calls upon the Lord. Where are you, Lord? Why are you not destroying my enemies? It's a foxhole psalm and a precatory psalm. You have lament psalms where the psalmist is crying out to God for help. And you have declaring psalms, declarative and thanksgiving psalms. 
But this morning, the psalm we're dealing with is a, what we would call a wisdom psalm. It's very much like, like, much like the Proverbs. It's much like Ecclesiastes and parts of Job. It's applied wisdom. Moses, a man of God. This is really interesting. It's right at the start of the psalm that says, A prayer of Moses, the man of God, who led the people out of Egypt to the foot of the promised land. And this is his thoughts towards the end of his life as he tries to accommodate everything he has learned as he's followed God. Please stand with me and let's read Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Shall I start again? Adonai, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. For all our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet this man is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and as for many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of Adonai, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You may be seated. This psalm naturally breaks into what I would call four melodic verses. Now, in our Bibles, we have it broken into 17 verses of literature. But these things are originally songs, the songs of praise. So you could break this very nicely into, into four verses, and that's the way we're going to deal with it this morning. So when I say verse, I'm determining it as a musical sense. The first verse, if you like, takes in verses 1 and 2. And it clearly introduces Moses' thoughts about God. You think about this man. Forty years as an Egyptian prince. Forty years in the wilderness. Forty years leading the people to redemption. And he pens these words. And what does he start with? Firstly, he starts with a name of God. He affirms God 
as the one who has sovereign authority and lordship over all things. That's what he goes with in these first two verses. He starts by stating the name of God called Adonai. This is not used often about God throughout the Old Testament. It's used often of men, to be quite honest. Adonai is used often of men as in Lord and Master. You are my Lord and Master. I work for my Lord and Master. It's only used some 30 times as a divine name of God. But as Nathan Stone has said in his excellent uh, little book on the names of God, if you want a wonderful little praise of the names of God, there's a wonderful book called Names of God. Uh, it's 1994 edition, Moody Bible Press. Grab it. It, it, will, it will just open your heart to why God's names are important and what that means. And Stone says this, Adonai signifies ownership or mastership, indicating the truth that God is the owner of each member of the human family and that he consequently claims the unrestricted obedience of all. I love that definition. God is the owner of each member of the human family and that he consequently claims the unrestricted obedience of all because he is creator. Throughout the Old Testament, those who know God as Adonai acknowledge themselves as his servants and him as the master. And this is the way Moses starts off. Master, Lord, you have been my dwelling place. Have a think about Moses when he says, you have been my dwelling place. What does that mean? You have been my shelter. You have been my rock. You have been there always. You have been the protector of my people and you have been the protector of me individually you know from Egypt you think about Moses what a tremendous story for him it wasn't death on the Nile for him because you know at the time when when Moses was around and he was born there was an edict out there that every Hebrew child on the age of two male child was to be Killed. God was Moses' protector through a little ark. We talk about a basket, right? It's an ark, folks. Baskets sink, arks float. It's a little ark, not a big ark like Noah's ark, a little ark. And the princess of Egypt saw, the daughter of Pharaoh saw this, this little child and picked him up and he had a very famed lifestyle for 40 years in the palace of Pharaoh. So from riches to rags, he had everything the world could offer. And he was sent to the wilderness for 40 years to shape him for a greater task, for a task of eternity. He came across and was protected by a a priest of Midian named Jethro, who actually became his father-in-law. He was confronted by God at the burning bush. He saw the Red Sea split open as they fled Egypt. He saw the cloud descend upon Sinai. He got to speak with God at Sinai on the mountain. He saw the provision of manna each day. He saw the constant forgiveness God would give this rebellious people. 
Because these people were fools. Not unlike you and I at times. They keep forgetting who God was. They kept rebelling. They kept sinning against God. But God was faithful in his forgiveness. So Moses can say, Adonai, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And thirdly in this section, he summarizes it in the best way he can. And, and this summary still blows my mind when I think about these words. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The eternality of God. It's a hard concept to, to grasp, isn't it? That before ever time began, God was. We are, we are finite by our view because we are limited by time and space. God is beyond time and space. Moses says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is the attribute he celebrates in this first verse. And it's even in God's name. And I think ringing in the back of his mind was his confrontation at the burning bush. Exodus 3.13 says this, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You see, this very name, I am, is significant because it displays God's eternality. And it indicates that God is what? A living God. You see, within Scripture, there is no argument for the existence of God. You notice that? Scripture doesn't have any argument for the existence of God. By way of example, Genesis 1. Let's have a look at it. You should all know Genesis 1 off by heart. I hope you do. What does Genesis 1 say? In the beginning, God. There's no argument for the existence of God. It's a stated fact. Scripture simply affirms his existence. And more often, Scripture assumes God's existence. Hebrews 11 tells us, Hebrews 11.6 says, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So God's very existence is, is considered the most basic aspect of his nature. He always was and he always will be. And Moses reflects this in just this beautiful poetic language from everlasting to everlasting. I don't know about you, but this eternality of God is something really difficult for me to grasp. 
I hope I'm not alone there. But it's a matter of faith. We trust that he has always been. You see, God's life is different from every other living being. While all other living, all other beings have their life in God, God does not derive his life from any external source. And the continuation of God's existence does not depend on anything outside himself. And that's at the heart of what Moses is driving at. Everlasting to everlasting. Before this was, before this world was, before the things we see around about us were, God has always been. He's always existed and he always will. Now, it's really interesting because when we understand this aspect of God's character and nature, it should free us from the idea that God needs us. See, on the contrary, God has chosen to use us to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that a marvelous thing? God has chosen us to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. He has chosen us to do so. Because he is eternal, he could have decided to bypass us for his purpose. He could have used any other means he would have liked. But you know what? It's our great gain. And it's a great gift of his grace that he permits us to know and serve him. That's our loss if we reject that opportunity. And I think that's the heart of what Moses is saying by using the term Adonai, by saying you're my dwelling place, by saying you are everlasting. Can you affirm that in your own life? Can you affirm that in your own life, that that God is your master and Lord, your sovereign, that God is your dwelling place, that he is always there, that he guides and that he directs and he, he shows you how to live a righteous life. Do you understand that God doesn't actually need you to accomplish his purposes because he is eternal, but God graciously has chosen you if you've placed your faith in Christ to know him and serve him? This affirmation of Moses can be your affirmation too. Through our precious Saviour. Let's continue. That's verse 1. Now, Moses contrasts God's eternality in the next little bit with our temporal nature. The temporal nature and life of man. We read it. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. You are like a dream, like a grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and it withers. When this section is talking about God's sovereignty, 
Moses acknowledges that God and God alone gives and determines the span of life. Do you get that? Right at the start here. You return man to dust. Who returns man to dust? God. God knows the days that you will live on this earth. He has your days numbered. It's been determined. It's been appointed. And this has wonderful security, does it not? They may be short. They may be long. But God has that in his sovereign control. See, in stark contrast to God's eternality is man's finiteness. We're but dust. Our life is infinitesimal, if you like, or it's just it's nothing compared with the eternalness of God. Could someone please get me a drink of water? <laughs> I really appreciate that. Thanks. This is uh, the contrast that he makes. And he uses it with three little language, picture languages here in verse um, 4, 5, and 6. Little pictures are, are very eloquent. You have this little uh, triad of, of uh, prose here. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So that is saying thanks, that uh, what we consider a long period of time is nothing compared in God's eternity. A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday. Or even smaller as a third of a watch of night. Would be the literal translation there. A third of the night. That's how you view a thousand years. That's how you view man's life. And secondly, verse 5, he, he talks about God controlling death. And thirdly, he uses the picture of a, a, a piece of grass that flourishes in the desert. How long does grass normally last in the desert? A day. And that's the picture he uses here. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed. It gets a little bit of dew on it, may, a little bit of rain. But by evening it fades and withers. So we see this beautiful contrast Moses drives out here. He says, God, you are eternal, everlasting to everlasting. Man, you are finite. God is sovereign over man. He is the potter. We are the clay. This is what Moses is praying for his people. We move into the third section, the third musical score, if you like. We move from God's eternality to God's sovereignty over all life to God's severity. You know, so when you think about Moses and the, the wandering in the, the Sinai wilderness, What is the one thing that comes to mind so often? What took 40 days took 40 years. Why was that? Because of grumbling Israelites. 
When our kids were young, we kept on saying, don't you be a grumbling Israelite when they'd known about something. Because grumbling Israelites had some pretty strong lessons to learn on the hand of God. He would not tolerate their sin. He would not tolerate their idolatry. You think about it. The scene I just cannot understand. Moses is up in Mount Sinai receiving instruction from the Lord. The people say to Aaron, the chief priest, hey, we want to worship something. We'll bring you our gold and our silver and our, our whatever else we've got. And Aaron, the chief priest, what does he do? He forms it into a golden calf. We're only talking several weeks out of the great greatest event in human history before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and that was the Passover. And they've forgotten. And they form an image, and they delve down and worship that image. Shows the rebellious heart of people. And that's what Moses is alluding to here. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. He's talking about his experience with his, leading his people through the wilderness. They were consumed and terrified by God's anger at times. As this, you know, as even the, the earth opened up and the sons of Korah were swallowed. They saw some judgments. But at the heart of the judgment was God's justice because of their idolatry. Now idolatry grieved God and aroused his anger, causing an entire generation to die in the wilderness. I think we forget that fact. An entire generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness because of sin and rebellion. And that's what Moses is talking about here. He explains that God sees everything. He sees all the sins that are laid before him. He sees all their unbelief, their murmuring, their disobedience, their grumbling, the secret sins of the heart are fully exposed in the blinding light of God's glory. That's what verse 8 talks about. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. God's holiness, his blinding light of his holy presence, nothing can be hid from God. Nothing. And this is what Moses is testifying to. In verse 9, he he talks about all the days of this generation that he is leading, these people he's leading through the desert are under God's wrath because of their failure to be obedient and because of the very fact that man dies. Because the wages of sin is death. Verse 10 talks about the fact that Man only has a limited time on earth, right? For the years of life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. 
It's an interesting thing for Moses to say was how long did Moses live? 120 years. But he shows that all that man, what's the result of man's life according to this verse of wisdom? The result of man's life is but toil and trouble. I want to take you over to a chapter in Ecclesiastes which beautifully pictures this. As I said, Ecclesiastes is, is uh, wisdom literature again. Ecclesiastes 12. Just turn with me to that just briefly and listen to this sort of poetry. It's, it's wonderful. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the days draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. So he starts, the, the preacher starts off, while you're young, enjoy your life to the fullest because when you get to my age, things are a little bit more troublesome. And he goes on to explain the troublesomeness. Before the sun and the light and the moon, the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease, that means your teeth stop working because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. That means you can't see anything before those days. Before your grinders disappear in your teeth and you can't see anything. And the doors on the street are shut. You can't hear anything. When the sound of the grinding is low, you know when you fall asleep when you're older and your teeth sort of grind away and nothing else happens? That's what the preacher's talking about here. When those things are happening... And one rises up at the sound of a bird. You can't get any sleep when you're old. Okay? You young fellas, I know you can sleep. I've seen testimony to this. You sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep. When you get old, you know it's difficult to sleep, isn't it? You hear something and you wake. And you can't get back to sleep. This is what uh, <laughs> the preacher is talking about here. Um, you rise up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. So you can't hear them anyway. So it's kind of pretty interesting sort of terminology. And they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. So you sit there in old age concerned about what is happening. The almond tree blossom, the grasshopper drags himself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about their streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Verse 13, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I think in Psalm 90, Moses might have read Ecclesiastes. I'm not sure whether Ecclesiastes was, read before, um, was written before Psalm 90. Probably not. But we have a, a testimony of the same thing. Life here on earth is toil and trouble. It's hard work. It's full of sorrow. It's full of disappointment. And then death. That's what he's affirming in verse 10 of of Psalm 90. And he says, Who takes to heart the full intensity of God's holy anger against sin? 
And I think in the rhetorical question that is asked here, Moses is saying, no one. No one gives God the fear that is rightly due him. No one understands God's fierce wrath nor responds in fitting reverence due to the Lord. I think that's at the heart of what Moses is saying here in this rhetorical question. And then he gives us the key thing. The key element of this psalm. It moves to a crescendo here in verse 12. He says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In light of your eternality, in light of your sovereignty, in light of your severity, Lord, teach us to number our days, to make them count. A man must be taught by God to number his days here on earth because they are few. This is the picture we have in relation to God, in relation to eternity, in relation to eternal life. The days we have on here are few. So teach us to number those days wisely. As Ecclesiastes said, teach us to obey the commands fully. We must weigh and value the days we have because God has numbered man's days. So all men must do the same. When we number our days, only then we'll be able to present God a heart of wisdom. Man must not be tempted to waste his life in temporal trash but to invest in eternity. That's the heart of what Moses is saying. He says, I've walked this life for 120 years. I've seen the rebellious, grumbling people. I've seen an awesome, sovereign God. And the lesson I want to pass on is number your days. Live well for God's glory. And then he gives us a glimpse of how to live well. And I think this is the final verse of the the psalm. And this talks about God's mercy. Because Moses pulls out his heart and he, he now requests that God restore and establish his people by his mercy. This is what develops a heart of, of worship, a heart of wisdom, is the mercy of God. Let's read it, verse 13 through 17. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. concludes with a a cry of Moses, Lord, return. Relent, O Lord. Show us your mercy. Show us your steadfast love. Lord, here is the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, show us your love. Show us what you have promised. Have pity on us. Return to us with divine grace before we return to the dust. I think that's the cry of what he's saying. Lord, give us divine grace and favor before our days are ended. 
He intercedes for Israel in verse 14. Clearly satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. He says, let a new day of grace dawn in the morning. Let the long night of divine anger cease. Let the rest of our days be different. Let them be filled with joy and gladness. Verse 15, Moses asked for a new heart of gladness. Moses knew the people were suffering under God's severe discipline that afflicted them. This trouble was God's chastisement upon their sin, but it was a painful correction. It was due to the fact that they were turning their backs upon God. Moses said, Bring us much gladness. Bring us much gladness through your divine favor and grace. Restore your deeds in our life, verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants, your work and your glorious power to their children. Cause us to stop going endlessly around in circles, and I would add in the wilderness. The context of this is that's what the people were doing. He prayed, but lead us into the promised land and the fullness of your blessing. Moses was asking, put your glorious display back on splendor, Lord. And then the request concludes here that God would bestow his undeserved favor upon his people rather than consume them with his wrath. Further, Moses asked that the Lord would establish the work of our hands, making them effective and enduring. So that's Psalm 90. The cry of Moses about God's eternality, God's sovereignty, God's severity, and finally, God's mercy. The key of it is to number your days in light of God's eternality, sovereignty, severity, and mercy. And the good news is that God pours out his mercy to us today through Jesus Christ. His grace is superabounding through the indwelling Spirit. When we place our faith and trust, the Spirit enables us to number our days as the Spirit points us to Christ in all things. Moses asked that people would be taught to number their days in light of God's eternality, sovereignty, severity, and mercy. The lesson for us is the same. Don't waste your life with the temporal. Think about the eternal. Fall often on the mercy of God through our precious Saviour. Develop a heart of wisdom. How do you develop a heart of wisdom? You develop a heart of wisdom by getting to know Adonai, getting to know Christ, getting to know God, this triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit, through prayer, meditation, word, self-encouragement with one another. These are all things that help us to number our days. We keep one another accountable in our journey of faith. These are important things to consider. 
So the challenge today, are you numbering your days? Days without God are frivolous. You don't have a personal relationship in Christ. There's no point in numbering your days. If you are a follower of Christ, number your days wisely. You're a steward of the time that he has given you. Have an eternal perspective. Thanks, music team.